Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Crowd by Ray Bradbury Mr. Spalner put his hands over his face. There was the feeling of movement in space, the beautifully tortured scream, the impact and tumbling of the car with wall, through wall, over and down like a toy, and him hurled out of it. Then, silence. The crowd came running. Faintly, where he lay, he heard them running. He could tell their ages and their sizes by the sound of their numerous feet over the summer grass and on the lined pavement and over the asphalt street, and picking through the cluttered bricks the way his car hung half into the night sky, still spinning its wheels with senseless centrifuge. Where the crowd came from, he didn't know. He struggled to remain aware, and then the crowd faces hemmed in upon him, hung over him like the large growing leaves of downbent trees. There were a ring of shifting, compressing, changing faces over him, looking down, looking down, reading the time of his life or death by his face, making his face into a moon-dial, where the moon cast a shadow from his nose out upon his cheek to tell the time of breathing, or not breathing, any more after. How swiftly a crowd comes, he thought, like the iris of an eye compressing in out of nowhere, a siren, a police voice, movement. Blood trickled from his lips and he was being moved into an ambulance, Someone said, is he dead? And someone else said, no, he's not dead. And a third person said, he won't die, he's not going to die. And he saw the faces of the crowd beyond him in the night. And he knew by their expressions that he wouldn't die. And that was strange. He saw a man's face, thin, bright, pale. A man swallowed and bit his lip, very sick. There was a small woman too, with red hair and too much red on her cheeks and lips. And a little boy with a freckled face. Others' faces. An old man with a wrinkled upper lip. An old woman with a mole upon her chin. They'd all come from... where? Houses, cars, alleys, from the immediate and the accident-shocked world. Out of alleys and out of hotels and out of streetcars and seemingly out of nothing they came. The crowd looked at him and he looked back at them and he did not like them at all. There was a vast wrongness to them. He couldn't put his finger on it. They were far worse than this machine-made thing that had happened to him now. The ambulance doors slammed. Through the windows he saw the crowd looking in, looking in. The crowd had always come so fast, so strangely fast, to form a circle, to peer down, to probe, to gawk, to question, to point, to disturb, to spoil the privacy of a man's agony by their frank curiosity. The ambulance drove off. He sank back and their faces still stared into his face, even with his eyes shut. The car wheels spun in his mind for days, one wheel, four wheels, spinning, spinning, and whirring around and around. He knew it was wrong, something wrong with the wheels and the whole accident and the running of feet and the curiosity. The crowd faces mixed and spun into the wild rotation of the wheels. He awoke. Sunlight, a hospital room. A hand taking his pulse. How do you feel? asked the doctor. The wheels faded away. Mr. Spalner looked around. Fine, I guess. He tried to find words about the accident. Doctor? Yes? That crowd. Was it last night? Two days ago. 
You've been here since Thursday. You're all right, though. You're doing fine. Don't try and get up. That crowd. Something about wheels, too. Do accidents make people, well, a little off? Temporarily, sometimes. He lay staring up at the doctor. Does it hurt your time sense? Panic sometimes does. Makes a minute seem like an hour, or, or, or maybe an hour seem like a minute. Y yes. Let me tell you, then. He felt the bed under him, the sunlight on his face. You'll think I'm crazy. I was driving too fast. I know. I'm sorry now. I jumped the curb and hit that wall. I was hurt and numb. I know, but I still remember things. Mostly the crowd. He waited a moment and then decided to go on, for he suddenly knew that it was that that bothered him. The crowd got there too quickly. Thirty seconds after the crash, they were all standing over me and staring at me. It's not right they should run that fast, so late at night. You only think it was thirty seconds, said the doctor. It was probably three or four minutes. Your senses. Yeah, I know, my senses, the accident. But I was conscious. I remember one thing that puts it all together and makes it funny. God, so damned funny. The wheels of my car, upside down, the wheels were still spinning when the crowd got there. The doctor smiled. The man in the bed went on. I'm positive. The wheels were spinning and spinning fast, the front wheels. Wheels don't spin very long. Friction cuts them down, and these were really spinning. You're confused, said the doctor. I'm, I'm not confused. The street was empty, not a soul in sight, and then the accident and the wheels still spinning, and all those faces over me, quick, in no time. And the way they looked down at me. I knew I wouldn't die. Simple shock, said the doctor, walking away into the sunlight. They released him from the hospital two weeks later. He rode home in a taxi. People had come to visit him during his two weeks on his back, and to all of them he had told his story, the accident, the spinning wheels, the crowd. They'd all laughed with him concerning it and passed it off. He leaned forward and tapped on the taxi window. What's wrong? The cabbie looked back. Sorry, boss, this is one hell of a town to drive in. Got an accident up ahead. Want me to detour? Yes, no, no, wait, go ahead, let's, let's take a look. The cab moved forward, honking. Funny damn thing, said the cabbie. Hey, you, get that flea trap out the way. Quieter. Funny thing, more damn people, nosy people. Mr. Spalner looked down and watched his fingers tremble on his knee. You noticed that too. Sure, said the cabbie, all the time. There's always a crowd. You'd think it was their own mother got killed. They come running awfully fast, said the man in the back of the car. Same way with a fire or an explosion. Nobody round, boom, lots of people round. I don't know. Ever seen an accident? At night? The cabbie nodded. Sure, don't make no difference. There's always a crowd. The wreck came into view. A body lay on the pavement. You knew there was a body, even if you couldn't see it, because of the crowd. The crowd with its back toward him as he sat in the rear of the cab with its back toward him. He opened the window and almost started to yell, but he didn't have the nerve. If he yelled, they might turn round. And he was afraid to see their faces. I seem to have a penchant for accidents, he said in his office. It was late afternoon. His friend sat across the desk from him, listening. I got out of the hospital this morning, and first thing on the way home, we detoured round a wreck. Things run in cycles, said Morgan. Let me tell you about my accident. I've heard it. Heard it all. But it was funny, you must admit. 
Uh, I must admit. Now, how about a drink? They talked on for half an hour or more. All the while they talked, at the back of Spalmer's brain, a small watch ticked. A watch that never needed winding. It was the memory of a few little things. Wheels and faces. At about 5.30, there was a hard metal noise in the street. Morgan nodded and looked out and down. What I tell you, cycles, a truck and a cream-coloured Cadillac. Yeah, yeah. Spolner walked to the window. He was very cold, and as he stood there, he looked at his watch, at the small minute hand. One, two, three, four, five seconds. People running. Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. From all over, people came running. Fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen seconds. More people, more cars, more horns blowing. Curiously distant, Spolner looked upon the scene as an explosion in reverse. The fragments of the detonation sucked back to the point of implosion. 19, 20, 21 seconds, and the crowd was there. Spolner made a gesture down at them, wordless. The crowd had gathered so fast. He saw a woman's body a moment before the crowd swallowed it up. Morgan said, You look lousy. Here, finish your drink. I'm all right. I'm all right. Let me alone. I'm all right. Can't you see those people? Can you see any of them? I wish we could see them closer. Morgan cried out, Where in the hell are you going? Spolner was out the door, Morgan after him, and down the stairs as rapidly as possible. Come along, and hurry. Take it easy. You're not a well man. They walked out onto the street. Spolner pushed his way forward. He thought he saw a red-haired woman with too much red colour on her cheeks and lips. There, he turned wildly to Morgan. Did you see her? See who? Damn it, she's gone. The crowd closed in. The crowd was all around, breathing and looking and shuffling and mixing and mumbling and getting in the way when he tried to shove through. Evidently, the red-haired woman had seen him coming and run off. He saw another familiar face, a little freckled boy. But there are many freckled boys in the world, and anyway, it was no use. Before Spolner reached him, this little boy ran away and vanished among the people. Is she dead? a voice asked. Is she dead? She's dying, someone else replied. She'll be dead before the ambulance arrives. They shouldn't have moved her. They shouldn't have moved her. All the crowd faces, familiar yet unfamiliar, bending over, looking down, looking down. Hey, mister, stop pushing. Who are you shoving, buddy? Spolner came back out and Morgan caught hold of him before he fell. You damn fool, you're still sick. Why in hell do you have to come down here, Morgan demanded. I, I don't know. I really don't. They moved her, Morgan. Someone moved her. You should never move a traffic victim. It kills them. It kills them. Yeah, that's the way with people. The idiots. Spolner arranged the newspaper clippings carefully. Morgan looked at him. What's the idea? Ever since your accident, you think every traffic scramble is part of you. What are these? Clippings of motor car crack-ups and photos. Look at them. Not at the cars, said Spolner. But at the crowds, round the cars, he pointed. Here. Compare this photo of a wreck in the Wilshire district with one in Westwood no resemblance, but now take this westward picture and align it with the one taken in the westward district ten years ago. And he motioned. This woman is in both pictures. Coincidence. The woman happened to be there once in 1936, again in 1946. A coincidence once, maybe. But twelve times over in a period of ten years, when the accidents occurred as much as three miles from one another. No. Here, he dealt out a dozen photographs. She's in all of these. 
Maybe she's perverted. She's more than that. How does she happen to be there so quickly after each accident? And why does she wear the same clothes in pictures taken over a period of a decade? I'll be damned. So she does. And last of all, why was she standing over me the night of my accident two weeks ago? They had a drink. Morgan went over the files. What'd you do, hire a clipping service while you're in hospital to go back through the newspapers for you? Spolner nodded. Morgan sipped his drink. It was getting late. The street lights were coming on in the streets below the office. What does all this add up to? I don't know, said Spolner, except that there's a universal law about accidents. Crowds gather. They always gather. And like you and me, people have wondered year after year why they gathered so quickly and how. I know the answer. Here it is. He flung the clippings down. It frightens me. These people, mightn't they be thrill-hunters, perverted sensationalists with a carnal lust for blood and morbidity? Spolner shrugged. Does that explain their being at all the accidents? Notice they stick to certain territories. A Brentwood accident will bring out one group. A Huntington Park, another. But there's a norm for faces. A certain percentage appear at each wreck. Morgan said, they're not all the same faces, are they? Naturally not. Accidents draw normal people too in the course of time, but, but these, I find, are always the first ones there. Who are they? What do they want? You keep hinting and never telling. Good Lord, you must have some idea. You've scared yourself, and now you've got me jumping. I've tried getting to them, but someone always trips me up. I'm always too late. They slip into the crowd and vanish. The crowd seems to offer protection to some of its members. They see me coming. Sounds like some sort of clique. They have one thing in common. They always show up together. At a fire or an explosion or on the sidelines of a war. At any public demonstration of this thing called death. Vultures, hyenas or saints. I don't know which they are. I just don't know. But I'm going to the police with it this evening. It's gone on long enough. One of them shifted that woman's body today. They shouldn't have touched her. It killed her. He placed the clippings in a briefcase. Morgan got up and slipped into his coat. Spolner clicked the briefcase shut. Or, I just happened to think, what? Maybe they wanted her dead. Why? Who knows? Come along. Sorry, it's late. See you tomorrow. Luck. They went out together. Give my regards to the cops. Think they'll believe you? Oh, they'll believe me, all right. Good night. Spolner took it slow, driving downtown. I want to get there, he told himself. Alive. He was rather shocked, but not surprised somehow when the truck came rolling out of an alley straight at him. He was just congratulating himself on his keen sense of observation and talking out what he could say to the police in his mind when the truck smashed into his car. It wasn't really his car, that was the disheartening thing about it. In a preoccupied way, he was tossed first this way and then that way while he thought, what a shame, Morgan was gone and lent me his extra car for a few days until my other car's fixed and now... Here I go again. The windshield hammered back into his face. He was forced back and forth in several lightning jerks. Then all motion stopped and all noise stopped and only pain filled him up. He heard their feet running and running and running. He fumbled with the car door. He fell out upon the pavement drunkenly and lay ear to the asphalt, listening to them coming. It was like a great rainstorm with many drops heavy and light and medium touching the earth. He waited a few seconds and listened to their coming and their arrival. Then, weakly, expectantly, he rolled his head up and looked. 
The crowd was there. He could smell their breaths, the mingled odours of many people sucking and sucking on the air a man needs to live by. They crowded and jostled and sucked and sucked all the air up and around his gasping face until he tried to tell them to move back. They were making him live in a vacuum. His head was bleeding very badly. He tried to move and then realised something was wrong with his spine. He hadn't felt much from the impact, but his spine was hurt. He didn't dare move. He couldn't speak. Opening his mouth, nothing came out but a gagging. Someone said, give me a hand, we'll, we'll roll him over and lift him into a more comfortable position. Spilner's brain burst apart. No, don't move me. We'll move him, said the voice casually. You idiots, you'll kill me, don't. But he couldn't say any of this out loud. He could only think it. Hands took hold of him. They started to lift him. He cried out and nausea choked him up. They straightened him out into a ramrod of agony. Two men did it. One of them was thin, bright, pale, alert, a young man. The other man was very old, and he had a wrinkled upper lip. He had seen their faces before. A familiar voice said, Is, is he dead? Another voice, a memorable voice, responded, No, not yet, but he will be dead before the ambulance arrives. It was all a very silly, mad plot. Like every accident, he squealed hysterically at the solid wall of faces. They were all around him, these judges and jurors with the faces he had seen before. Through his pain, he counted their faces. The freckled boy, the old man with the wrinkled upper lip, the red-haired, red-cheeked woman, an old woman with a mole under her chin. I know what you're here for, he thought. You're here just as you're at all accidents to make certain the right ones live and the right ones die. That's why you lifted me. You knew it would kill. You knew I'd live if you left me alone. And that's the way it's been since time began when crowds gather. You murder much easier this way. Your alibi is very simple. You didn't know it was dangerous to move a hurt man. You didn't mean to hurt him. He looked at them above him and he was curious as a man under deep water looking up at people on a bridge. Who are you? Where do you come from? And how do you get here so soon? You're the crowd that's always in the way, using up good air that a dying man's lungs are in need of, using up space he should be using to lie in alone, tramping on people to make sure they die. That's you. I know all of you. It was like a polite monologue. They said nothing. Faces. The old man, the red-haired woman. Someone picked up his briefcase. Whose is this? they asked. It's mine. It's evidence against all of you. Eyes inverted over him. Shiny eyes under tousled hair or under hats. Faces. Somewhere, a siren. The ambulance was coming. But looking at the faces, the construction, the cast... The form of the faces, Spilner saw it was too late. He read it in their faces. They knew. He tried to speak. A little bit got out. It looks like I'll be joining up with you. I guess I'll be a member of your group now. He closed his eyes then and waited for the coroner. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so?
You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? That was The Crowd by Ray Bradbury, and it was um, selected by one of my patrons, Anne-Marie from Vermont. People who join up as a patron, I think it's at the ghouls level, they get the, the right to ask me to recite, do a story for them, recount, narrate, whatever the word is. So this is the second Ray Bradbury we've done in the, um, the October game. This story in the crowd's from the October country as well. Uh, so he was really prolific, Ray Bradbury. You know, he's an American author of science fiction, weird stories. Not just that. I mean, he wrote Fahrenheit 451 as well. You know, some really quite famous stuff. And he was he was a clearly an excellent writer. He did it all, all the time. Uh, and that makes you good at things, you know. You just keep doing stuff. And also consciously practicing it and trying to improve rather than just letting it all dribble out. That sounds nasty, doesn't it? But yeah, no, so um, there he was. And a lot of his stories are macabre. If you, um, something wicked this way comes, which has been filmed a couple of times, is is very poetically written. This isn't. This is this has the style of we did um, the not the smoke ghost. We're going to do that by Fritz Lieber, uh, but Bradbury and all that. There's this nineteen mid mid twentieth century style kind of. It's almost, it has something to do, I think, with the gumshoe style as well of the hard-boiled detective. It's sort of street style almost. It's not a very adorned language, this. Not like something wicked this way comes, which is beautifully ornate. But, you know, Bradbury's up to the job. He can do whatever style you want. So Bradbury was born in 1920, and he died in 2012. So, you know, um, he wrote a lot of stuff. He was born in uh, Illinois. And he died in California. But it looks like he went to Los Angeles when he was young. His mother was Swedish and his dad was a lineman for the county uh, and who was of English origin. Bradbury was keen on drama when he was at school and, and roller skating in Hollywood where he went in, in the hopes of uh, meeting celebrities. And he, he was pretty successful, really. So let's say something about this story. It's a short story. I've done a load of long... I did The Man Whom the Trees Loved. I did Dorian Gray, and which a huge undertaking. So it was quite nice to be uh, have a short story to do because I need a rest. I've just come back from holiday, which I'll tell you about, no doubt. This story remind me, reminded me a lot of psychotic patients I've worked with. And what happens with people who have psychosis, they give too much weight to things. And then they start to see patterns that, that, uh, that we can't see. I was going to say that aren't there, that I don't believe are there. They call it, something is the psychotic insight. So first of all, if it was true that there was a crowd of people that formed around every accident, then that, that, is, that is the belief that probably isn't true, that we give too much weight to. We, we see a couple of clues and we give it too much weight and then we have the psychotic insight, which is the, uh, the irrational belief that we become convinced of. And then everything else follows quite logically. You know, you, then you ask normal, logical questions. One of the things I've always been fascinated by is working with people with schizophrenia is how the, the, the common theme is of control there is this belief there are agencies. So it's it's a disease of agency as far as I'm concerned. Experiences are split into what is mine and what is yours. Who's doing this stuff? You know, is it me or is it somebody else? I've got a voice in my head at the moment. Well, let me just do it. Mm. Yeah, okay, there was a voice in my head then. And that was my thought and that was me. But if I had a voice in my head, I went, mm, and I thought that isn't me. 
That's the man from the pet shop. I had a guy who thought his brain was being controlled by a man from the pet shop in the town. So he had that belief, which was clearly irrational, but he was convinced of it. And then you kind of go, well, why would he do that? Actually, sometimes the the, the logic breaks down because he didn't really know. He didn't know why or how this guy would be putting thoughts into his head to try and control him. So it's about agency control. Uh, and usually there's a paranoid element. Therefore, that these shadowy agencies are trying to do something to me. So in this case, it's the crowd. But in many cases, it's... Um, it's, it's, it lends itself to groups which are shadowy anyway. So, you know, CIA, KGB, MI5, the police. You know, people often have theories that, that these groups are interested in them. Illuminati, um, black magicians, angels. Usually it's malign, so it's not often angels that want to do things to you. So usually there's a shadowy and um, malevolent bodies. And it's really common. So this story, Red Like, a kind of somebody who's got schizophrenia. I mean, he, you know, he's seeing things and he's putting two and two together and making five. Now, it could be that there is a woman with a red face and he's just mistaken it, mistaken it for the other woman, you know. So I'm, I'm you know, this is a story. This isn't real. So it's not the same as when, you, if you, when you're listening to a patient and they're telling you these things like, uh, you know, the stars talk to them. The guy, the young man who believed that thought they were quite nice, the stars, so it's not always awful. But, you know, very often I, I knew a woman who believed that the police believed that she was a prostitute and she wasn't a prostitute. I mean, she was a respectable older woman and she believed that the police had put cameras in all her rooms. And otherwise she was relatively rational. I'm like, well, if what do you think they do with real prostitutes? They don't go to all this trouble with real prostitutes. And if they thought you were, they'd just arrest you. And then I was like, this is CBT, actually. You look for the evidence. So you kind of, you do a, a reductio ad absurdum, really. So if the police, right, how many rooms you got? How many cameras? So there's, say, 15 cameras because there's some outside. So you've got to have somebody watching those cameras all the time. Yes, that's right. And they do it all the time, 24-7. Yes, they do. So they're going to be on shift system. They're going to be paid night, night rates and weekend rates. It's going to cost them quite a lot of money. There's going to have to be somebody transcribing this. There's going to be somebody analyzing it. And uh, it's all in case you were a prostitute. You know, it just doesn't make any sense that they would do this. These people need pensions. They need um, conditions. You need back office staff to pay them. You know, you need somebody to purchase the equipment. You need somebody to maintain the equipment. So this becomes a massively expensive thing. And it, it clearly makes no sense. And this sunk in with her for a bit. And she says, no, she's a very pleasant woman. You know, she said, yes, yes, yes. She said, but you see that leaf? Yeah, that's moved. That shows they've been here. So it's impossible to argue people out of delusions because they're so fixed. And the other thing I say when I'm at work is we have two systems. We have a thinking system and a feeling system. We operate nearly all the time in our feelings. We go into a place, we get a feeling, we trust that feeling. We get anxiety. We believe the anxiety. We we don't go, oh, this is anxiety. This is nonsense. We go, oh, I feel anxious. There must be something to be anxious about where, where it, there isn't in many cases, you know. So it's um, it's we and so if you believe that you are being that there's a crowd of people who gathers and they want to kill you for what reason is not really clear so you can join the crowd I don't know it doesn't really make any sense does it but of course because this is not a psychotic delusion it just is shaped like a, a psychotic delusion and reminiscent of it it's very threatening isn't it you know I always talk about Mark Fisher's definition of different kinds of spooky and we, and many times talk about you know the horror porn of dead bodies being chopped up and then we have jump scare. I don't know if you thought it was a conjuring too, and this horrible old lady is scuttling under the house and coming really fast. And we don't like things that move fast either. So those are scary things. 
But then, of course, there's the more psychological scariness, which is the uncanny, things that are familiar, which are not familiar, and they turn. But there's then the eerie. This is more an eerie story. I know it's called a weird tale. Weird is usually juxtaposition of things that should not be together. So, you know, Lovecraft, about uh, you know, uh, squealy aliens coming out of a Providence um, cellar or ghouls in this. You know, these things should not be, and, and they're juxtaposed together, and that's the weird. The eerie is about agency. The eerie call of the curlew. You know, we hear it. What does it mean? What does it portend? We're always looking with agents. We're looking for what, what are their intentions to me. We want to figure out what that dog intends, what that man intends towards me. And once I can figure it out, I can relax. Yeah, the dog's nice. It's calm. Or I can take action. The dog's savage. I'm going to run away. It'll catch you. But, you know, these people mean him no good. They mean to kill him, in fact. And they mean not not to let him upset their game and stop them recruiting more dead people. So, yeah, so it's an eerie story, technically, and it's about agency. And it has a lot in common, in my opinion, with the kind of psychotic delusion that you see characteristically in um, schizophrenia and other other psychoses, really. One of the one of the classic things with people with schizophrenia is I don't know if you ever saw that movie, The Truman Show where they believe that they are the stars of her. Everybody else is just pretending. So nobody else is real. There are shadowy agents who they don't really know what they're about. And and then there's them. So it's me, I'm real. And you're not real. You're just the faces, the masks of some shadowy agency. Yeah, that's, that's quite disturbing, really. I was going to say it's probably not true. I don't think it's true. There we are. That's just me. Anyway. I'm tired. I've just come back from Zagreb in Croatia. So I'm, we haven't really been anywhere. I haven't been abroad since COVID. And uh, my friend Nick, who I was at university with, is working. In, he works all, He's worked all over the world. And he kept saying to me, oh, you must come to so South Africa and Chicago and um, Split and uh, Manila, I think. Anyway, he worked all over. And I never could because I didn't have the time. I was working full time. didn't have any money. And so this time I thought, well, you know what? It's my birthday this week. This is March 2022, by the way. It's the 18th of March 2022. It's my birthday tomorrow. And I thought I'd go and see him. So we had a lovely time. And he was at work, so I just kind of walked around the city. And Zagreb, I'd never been before. But it's uh, it's an old city. It's relatively big. It's about just short of a million population. It's clean. Um, it's got a lot of clean new bits. It's a lot of EU money. So the new bits are great. You can see the old Soviet-era stuff with all the graffiti doesn't look too good. And then behind that is the old Austro-Hungarian Art Nouveau stuff, which is lovely. And where that's been restored, it's gorgeous. Sometimes it hasn't been restored. But they had COVID, and then they had an earthquake in 2020. So all the, all the museums and things were shut. So I was just wandering around the streets, which actually, and the parks and the botanical garden, and, and <laughs> ended up getting lost and had some strange experiences, people coming and talking to me which, you know, I may recount another time. But it was, it was cool. I walked miles and miles and miles. And then uh, I've got to tell you that when we were young men, we liked to drink. And it turns out he still does. So I basically had to come home after four days to recover from the indulgence. Not that we'd, you know, it was very simple. We'd go out, we'd have something to eat, we'd have something to drink, and then I'd go back and then I'd walk around the streets. And then, of course, it just tied in with the Festival of Lights, yeah, it was good. I liked it. I liked it a lot. But I'm come home now and I'm trying to catch up with all my other jobs, including doing a recording for the podcast. A dog tried to bite me. In uh, That's what, uh, kind of what I was saying about this. A dog came up to me and I stood my ground. 
and talked to it and it ran off. And then I moved on and sat down and then she came at me again. And I just didn't flinch. And then it sniffed me and ran off and uh, bothered another dog. So there's a lesson there, I think. I'm not sure what it is. Anyway, I hope you're all well. My two girls have both got COVID. My mother had COVID a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my girls have both got COVID. Catherine's negative now. And Imogen's still got... So they were going to come to my birthday due tomorrow. Imogen and her boyfriend have both got COVID, so they can't come. So that's a disappointment. But I'll see them soon. I'm going to go and see my mum tomorrow as well. Anyway, happy days, everybody. It's sunny here. So you know what they say about March? Comes in like a lion, goes out like a lamb. So it was very dreary at the beginning. And now it is beautiful. I've got some bee flowers. I'm going to scatter bee flowers all over the back by the river and create a wildflower meadow. There we are. Hope you're all well. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?